Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Hello listeners and thanks for tuning in to another episode. Spotting the warning signs of psychological distress. Recent research has indicated that early intervention and treatment in child and adolescence dramatically impacts the course of mental illness. Working extensively in acute child and adolescent mental health, this week's podcast guest, Dr. Stephen Spencer, knows the importance of early intervention and dedicates his career to educating others on how to spot the warning signs. Stephen Spencer is an Equi Energy Youth's co-founder and clinical director. His passion for young people to have optimum health and well-being has become his life's work, resulting in recognition as a leader amongst his peers in the mental health sector. Alongside a wealth of clinical experience, Stephen regularly hosts information and training sessions for educators, clinicians, and parents and carers. The sessions provide the appropriate tools and techniques to assess the earlier warning signs of psychological distress in young people and how to effectively respond to their emotional state. Most recently, Stephen created the Coach to Cope program, which is an evidence-based framework for psychological first aid that can be applied to any child in any situation. This course is designed to equip adults with skills and techniques to support children experiencing acute episodes of distress and prevent reoccurring episodes in the future. Listen in as Stephen and I discuss his background as a mental health nurse and his transition into working specifically with youth, all while managing acute distress. Dr. Stephen Spencer, welcome to Pebble in the Pond. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks very much, Sam. Thanks for inviting us along today. It's a pleasure. I'm really interested in sharing your journey and also what you're up to with Equi Energy Youth with our listeners. So looking forward to getting into that today. Steve, tell us a a little bit about your background. So Sam, I'm a mental health nurse by trade. I started my nursing career at uh, at Morissette Hospital, which is a large hospital for adults with uh, mental health, with sort of for long term care. Yes. And I started off as a trainee enrolled nurse, so that hospital based training. And I came to nursing a little bit older in life after the birth of my first daughter and the first midwife we had was a, a man and I thought I was looking, I have no, for, had no formal qualifications at the time. I was looking for, you know, a career, not just a job. And I, I thought I'll give this nursing a go. And I was very fortunate to get the opportunity to do some hospital-based training as a traineeship. And after that traineeship, I became an enrolled nurse and I worked in a forensic adult mental health unit where I, I provided nursing care for men aged 18 to 65 who were receiving psychiatric rehabilitation Often many of those men had committed crimes for reason of their uh, mental illness and were, were receiving treatment. Wow. Um, and that's, yeah, that's where I yeah, learned, I guess, learned the craft of mental health nursing. 
Wait, so the, the birth of your first child was what led you to say this is the career and the path I want to go down? Yeah, it was, Isn't that I guess I've always, yeah, always done jobs just to, you know, put a roof over the head and those types of things. And I'm, I'm really fortunate I end up finding something I, I still love to this day. And what made you want to go specifically down the mental health route? I guess at the time, the interviewer on that trainee enrolled nursing panel said, have you considered mental health? And at this point in time, I was sort of just you know, looking to, to give anything a go at the time. Yeah. And I guess it was fate, really, to be honest. They say it's the mental health service offered me the position. And you know, I, personally, I've never looked back. Well, that sounds really interesting. And so how was the experience with the forensic mental health stuff? I mean, was that was it really interesting? You know, yeah, really absolutely enjoyed- it was. Yeah, I, I I was really fortunate actually that I went to the unit at a time where I was by far the youngest clinician in the team, mm-hmm. and I actually had around me what they would have termed in you know in previous psychiatric nurses. So these were you know people who had been you know psychiatric or mental health nurses for longer than I'd been on the planet at the time. So yeah. I guess around me I had colleagues who invested in me as mentors. And I was really fortunate to learn you know, mental health nursing from, from hundreds of years of experience around me. So yeah. I, I think people coming into the, you know, if I was to, to enter into that same setting again today, I, I wouldn't have been afforded the, you know, yeah. the same experience, definitely. What was, were there some really key learnings or key highlights of, of that part of your career? Yeah, I, I realised how little I knew about life <laughs> and one of the things that really stood out to me was that you know many of the men that we provided care for there were living every day with their psychiatric or mental illness and the symptoms of those and just you know some of the challenges that those you know, those men had experienced throughout their life and the the thing that stood out probably the most was that there were a bunch of nurses there who were my who I, who went on to be my mentors that really showed so much kindness and care to people that maybe the rest of you know, the society probably wouldn't have afforded. Yeah. Wow. That sounds like an amazing part. So how long were you there doing doing that at that site? Yeah. So I worked in that unit for five years while I completed my registered nursing degree at Newcastle Uni. Okay. And and one of the things I noticed about many of the men that I nursed in that environment was that a lot of them had had social and developmental challenges in their early formative years. And I think it was really during that time, and as, as I as I yeah, got my university degree, I decided to branch and and move to child and adolescent mental health nursing. And I thought, you know, if we can do a little bit at the right at the early stages, that the, the differences over a, a lifetime can be significant. So that's probably really what guided me to child and adolescent mental health nursing. It's such a critical area, isn't it? The child and adolescent mental health. Yeah, definitely. I. It's certainly an area you know, for, for young people that a challenge, adolescence and childhood is a challenge for all young people in some ways and also a great time of growth and exploration and all those fun parts of life. But you know, for young people who do um, have challenges around their mental health, it can be really quite a difficult period and yeah, very, very fortunate to work with some amazing young people and in their most difficult times. And how many years have you been doing that for now? Yes, I've been working in acute mental health inpatient unit for children and adolescents for just over 10 years. As I said, mentioned, I started off as a new graduate registered nurse after becoming a registered nurse and and sort of just worked my way 
through that and I, and I currently work as a clinical nurse consultant on an inpatient unit as well as the work that I do with Equi Energy Youth. And during your 10 years in the child and adolescent mental health space, what have you seen? What, what's been some of the biggest challenges that you've noticed? Yeah, I think when I first started working on the unit, I think the biggest challenge was that young people come into hospital for a range of different reasons. Some of those are certainly diagnosable mental illnesses like you know, episodes of psychosis and um, you know, major depressive illnesses and things like that, yes. um, you know, which require acute inpatient treatment. But there are lots of times where young people are admitted to the unit because of the high-risk behaviours associated with episodes of acute psychological distress mm-hmm. and they... Don't necessarily, that doesn't necessarily mean that the young person has a mental illness or, and I, I think sometimes we, you know, label young people, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest challenge. And uh, I guess there's this misconception in the community that if we put a young person in hospital that we're managing risks and, but hospital has its own risks that it, that it introduces as well. And, you know, trying to respond to a young person in acute distress on an inpatient unit can also be really challenging. We actually, at the time, you know, responding to acute distress, we in mental health services we use interventions such as medications, including antipsychotic medications, whether they're oral or given as an intramuscular injection. But also, we use uh, physical restraint and seclusion to manage episodes of acute distress and associated high risk behaviour, like aggression and violence and yeah. you know, self harming behaviour and suicidal behaviour. So. I guess every time we use those interventions, we're sending the message to young people that drugs and violence and isolation are helpful, and they're really the things we're trying to teach young people that aren't helpful. So I mean, that probably led me to doing some research, and, and I did a PhD on uh, how to respond to episodes of acute distress, and you know, for my own practice and for those around me, how we could reduce the amount of times we use those coercive interventions. And what you said earlier, Steve, there was about, uh, you know, putting a label on kids at a young age. Do you feel like that then goes on to hinder that person in the future with, with the label at such an age? Yeah, it can do. And, and certainly, you know, I guess I'm a believer in there's more than one truth. And, yeah. you know, there are certainly times where giving a diagnosis to a young person can be really helpful. And, you know, there's specific treatments that we know are effective. I guess one of the challenges I've always had in, in my own mind is, you know, when a young person is admitted to acute inpatient unit and you know, systems are set up in ways where we do need to provide diagnoses and labels and things like that. But young people are admitted to acute inpatient units at times for things like that are stresses in the community that where the, the young person essentially is the weakest link in the system and that the symptoms manifest through that young person through distress. For example, young people who are in maybe chaotic environments or unsafe environments at home or, yeah, um, you know, have experiences where, you know, the community and the village haven't been able to keep them safe and what ends up happening is that they get really distressed and they, they're the ones who end up in hospital or, um, you know, things like homelessness and things like that, social, psychosocial stresses. But, I mean, at what point do you say, well, hang on, this isn't really so much them as it is a product of the environment that they were in? Yeah, and I think that's a, a part of any good uh, mental health assessment. We do a, 
obviously yeah. a biopsychosocial assessment and all of those things uh, come into account. And I guess once a person does come to an acute inpatient unit, you know, it is an opportunity to provide intervention and support irrespective of, of what it is. I guess one of the things that we can do is just be, as a, as a system and as a society, just be more considered about when a young person needs to be in hospital and when they don't. Uh, and I guess that's a you know, large part of the work we're trying to do with uh, Equi Energy Youth is to build that capacity for the whole system and, and the community or the village for young people because there is such a, a big demand on resources for you know, mental health services and other services to, you know, to try and um, support young people who are doing it a bit tough at the time. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes uh, that makes sense. Tell me, what what are you seeing as the main causes for people coming in with acute distresses these days? I mean, is yeah, um, I guess when when you think of you know just psychological distress and episodes, and and obviously the you know the more frequent and intense and you know the longer episodes of distress are present for young people, the more likely they are to go on and develop mental health you know, diagnoses and conditions. So that's why we really focus on episodes of distress and trying to support young people through those to reduce them and, and to cope better with them and seek help in positive ways. I guess the causes, it's interesting if you're in, in, in my engagement with you know, thousands of adults who the first thing that they'll say, adults will say about you know, distress and mental health causes will be around things like social media, technology, drugs and alcohol and bullying and those types of themes. Yeah. Uh, it's inter- interesting if you have a look at the um, the results of, say, Mission Australia's survey you know, where they, they speak with 25,000 young Australians. None of those are on the list. You know, for young people, they say coping with stress, school and study problems, mental health problems, body image and physical health are their biggest concerns. So it's interesting as adults, we look at and young people, we're looking at the same thing from a totally different perspective. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Because in some ways, it could also be the same thing. Hey, like body image is a result of using social media platform. It could be. Um, yeah, and I guess it just highlights the importance of that. You know, young people being connected to adults and finding that communication and that common language. And often we describe things in different ways. That if we don't have an understanding of what that description is, that's where the miscommunication can come. And you talk about miscommunication. I mean, that's such a, a key part of all this, isn't it? Really, at the end of the day, is communication between people. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, communication is an interesting one. I mean, the training that we do with you know parents and uh, other professionals, clinicians, and teachers, educators. Verbal communication is often the one that we we put the most uh, the most weight into that yeah. verbal communication. You know, lots of people say things they don't necessarily mean, like "I'm fine" yeah. or "Leave me alone." But it's interesting that in a lot of the training we do, we take into consideration that all behaviour and actions and body sensations and those cues are a way of communicating. And and our role as an adult in any situation is just to, when we're around young people, is to use all of those cues to assess whether a child's coping or not, and if they're not. How do we help you know, guide them and support them in that moment? Yeah, it's very interesting. And and so from that and from your work, how did you get involved with Equity Equity Energy? Yeah, so uh, I guess I'm really fortunate. I've got some colleagues who have been almost like lifelong friends of mine. You know, they have other skill sets and they're not clinicians themselves. But I really wanted to do something really practical with my PhD. You know, I didn't do a PhD to be an academic, and and I really wanted to make a difference 
I guess, for young people and families and make it the, the learnings that I learn in that environment transferable to. And so what we did was we set up Equity Energy Youth, the charity and not-for-profit organisation. And in December of 2018, we officially launched. So we went through a period of about five months prior to that where we piloted, piloted a couple of our programs mm-hmm. uh, that we were developing at the time just to get feedback. And we did that mainly with educators and parents because you know young people, children and adolescents spend most of their time in the community with parents and teachers. And so we thought they were the best people to target to build that capacity. And I guess what we've tried to do is provide a, some training and a framework for supporting young people in the moment that would support the work of any child who's in treatment. I guess what, what I mean by that is young people, for example, who maybe had a mental health assessment and require specific mental health services, they might go, for example, and see the GP and get on a mental health care plan and go and see a psychologist. And if that psychologist sees the young person every fortnight, for example, that's only one hour out of about you know, what, 330-odd hours of the fortnight to, to do the treatment. And the success of that treatment really comes back to how the other adults, you know, the parents, the teachers, the grandmas, grandpas, all of those the support uh, people network. in the village, yeah. support, yeah, how do they manage and support the child through those other large hours, uh, you know, most of the time. So if a young person is receiving, you know, mental specialist mental health care by a psychologist or, or um, community CAMS clinician or someone like that, it's really the rest of the system that, you know, and the support they provide that help with the improving those outcomes. And we're really focusing on those other adults. That's so interesting. Is that what, is that where the whole, uh, concept of this started was saying recognizing there was a gap and it's not so much the people that are getting treated uh, as it is the, the network of support around them yeah definitely I, I guess from my work in inpatient unit and looking out more globally the gaps in the system can't be filled by the amount of resources in 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 the health systems and the and the services and that mental health is everyone's business and so I guess what we've really focused on is how can we build capacity in all members of the community to support young people in times of distress, yes. how to assess and recognise if a child's doing well or not. And you know, it's really, we, we do a lot of work around when to respond and when not to because sometimes over-responding is not helpful as well. So you know, really guiding people, we use a, a what we call our TAR3 framework that came from the observational component of the study that I did that is really a framework for psychological first aid. So it really guides the adult responder through the process and how to connect with a child and guide them from maybe not so helpful behaviours or high-risk behaviours back to where they're coping so that we can then disengage and, and let them live their life. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I guess, you know, we spend a lot of time, lots of people listening today would have done Dr. ABC of medical first aid or you yeah. know, general first aid and that framework is there to, even if you've never had to provide advanced life support to somebody, that framework's there so that in a crisis everyone knows what to expect and what to do and what and what to say and the TAR3 model is designed to do the same, that we're using a common language and a common understanding and, and that came from you know the observational model of distress that was uh, from my study. And Steve, there's, a, I mean, there's a, a few other courses or programs like that, you know, mental health first aid. 
Tell us how this yep. differs from those other ones that are out there. The thing that we focus on is that in-the-moment response to some, some of the, the other programs that I've seen and, and, and had other people, educators and things I've engaged with who've done those training. A large part of it is around the assessment of mental illness or not and identifying symptoms and things like that. I guess the TAR3 model can be applied to any child in any situation and it's really about promoting coping and resilience and positive help-seeking behaviours and standing back and observing and letting a child try to manage the distress themselves and then really identifying the point at which they're not coping and how to respond in a way that's appropriate for that level of distress and and match. Everybody um, who experiences distress will present that or project that in different ways Mm -hmm. and uh, one of the we've got two programs we run and one of those is also about how to uh, develop individualized support plans so that we know that we can understand what each person looks like as they escalate and de-escalate so that we can match the amount of response that we need is that the coach to cope program yeah so the coach to cope online program is the tar3 psychological first aid framework yeah. and um, and that's for all parents or professionals you know those frontline workers youth workers those types of people who are just at any point in time can use that framework to respond to a child the coach to cope the responder toolkit program we do we do lots of work with you know youth case managers in the out of home care organizations or community managed organizations uh, psychologists and clinicians and educators in roles that are more likely to sit with a child with the, from the TAR3 model. I've developed a, a tool to get to know the young person and find their voice and then develop that into an individualized support plan that can guide in a person to, you know, to further enhance the TAR3 response to make it more individualized. Yeah. Now that makes sense. How did the programs actually come about? Was it out of demand as you were growing the the charity or was it something that you started with from day dot? Yeah, I guess we, we, we built them first and then we went out and piloted them and, and got feedback from educators primarily and then clinicians working with health services and educators but also parents in our as part of our charitable cause. We do all of our parent sessions to the community for free. So yeah, really just yeah, getting the feedback from them and about what they need. Oftentimes, I hear, I just don't know what to do and uh, to help a young person in distress. And what we hope is that we can provide that framework so people can know what to you know, to look for and, and how to do that. Is that training program for parents, is that still free today? Yeah, it is. We put on, so we, we're in Newcastle in New South Wales and we put on some sessions here at our home base. Yep. Uh, the base health and then also we we go out and offer that when we for example we went on a bit of a road trip through new south wales through hunter new england and uh, up the north coast and to speak with educators and other professionals and then when we're there we also like to run sessions for parents so if we work in a school or a network of schools we always like to offer the same for the community to try and what we are trying to do is get a common language and a common framework across all the systems and bring those adults together how to communicate and support the child. Yeah. Are you seeing some growth in the amount of time that you've been going? Yeah, we've been really fortunate. 
we've met some amazing people along the way who really it, it astounds me that the people in the community are you know, educators and clinicians and that are so committed to working with young people in this space yeah. we December of 2018 so we're coming up almost to our two year mark since we started we've, we're well over 3,000 educators from around New South Wales that we've provided this training to and you know, we're, we're now currently working into mental health units across the state and with clinicians and, and we've had a range of private or um, primary healthcare clinicians and youth workers and different types of roles that people play for the young people that we've um, been able to meet so yeah we're really finding it's been a little bit interesting with this year with obviously yeah. the COVID and you know we, we were primarily providing face-to-face training but I think uh, obviously there's been a bit of a shift and we've actually been able to, to I guess have access and contact uh, to more people through online platforms as well so obviously our preference is always face-to-face there's something nice about that and I thought but um, yeah, definitely we're, we're planning further trips uh, around the state early into next year as well. That's exciting. And is it is it immediately just the New South Wales focus for that? Uh, no, I think that's just how we've progressed. We, we've okay. sort of started and, and slowly worked out. Um, yeah, I, I think if you each area and state and things will have some differences, but I think uh, what we've got to share with people will, will, will be uh, relevant for all adults and young people around yeah, around around our country. I guess there's just been some challenges of late getting out, and yeah, we certainly hope to continue to grow and uh, make this a, something that all, everyone can access. Steve, you mentioned the challenges, one of which is COVID and and going from face to face to online delivery. Yep. T- tell us what other challenges have you experienced in your almost two years of establishing and trying to grow a not for profit. Uh, Really great question. I think probably the biggest challenge is uh, probably the one between my ears, Sam. Um, <laughs> so every day in my clinical work, every week I come across uh, and work with young people and families that are in crisis. And uh, I think probably the biggest challenge has been for me to, uh, I guess, patience, a bit of patience and tolerance in, you know, because we want to get it out to as many people as we can. And so I'm really talking about things around suicide, reducing, you know, we're really committed to being part of the solution of reducing youth suicide rates. I know that every day there are young people out in the community who are struggling and experiencing episodes of distress where things like aggression and self-harm behaviours and those types of things are either impacting on their education or they're you know, being engaged in other services or turning up to hospital and you know, really want to be able to help support those young people and the adults around them to support them and, and think about what might be going on for the young person. And what, in your experience, Steve, like what for suicide prevention for our youth, tell us what do you think it takes to come up with a solution? I mean, this is the golden question, obviously, if you need – but, I mean, in your opinion, what, what do you think really works? Uh, connection is the first answer to that. Suicide, and I guess we really need to differentiate before I, I, I go on there, we really need to differentiate the difference between planned suicide, which happens in secrecy and you know with some a level of cognitive thinking and planning, and then the opposite of that, which is that impulsive, reactive, you know, high-risk behaviour when a young person is emotionally dysregulated and not thinking about what they're doing but put themselves at risk with suicidal type behaviour. Yes. Um, so that there is a difference there, and, and I think for both of those 
presentations that connection is the one thing, you know, the, the more adults a young person has around them to recognize and when a child is, you know, whether it's in a hot reactive or a more planned way, you know, we, we will see things like disconnection and disengagement from adults and, uh, and peers and things in that space. So I think connection's a really important thing and connection between the adults as well as with the, the child, I think it's really important. One of the things that we want to try and do is really start to get adults in the systems and the, the settings around a young person to, to really come together. When, when young people have adults around them that are consistent and use the same language and, and support them in the same ways, and, and yeah, that's the safety net that wraps around them. Yeah, and we, we need to build capacity in those adults to support the young person in some, sometimes some really difficult situations. Mm. Um, you know, sit, sitting alongside a young person who's engaging in self-harm behaviour is can be really challenging. But how do we share that and build that capacity for an, for an adult to help guide that young person through that moment? And, and that comes back to the programs that you're establishing to help with that education and awareness in the community. Yeah. Definitely, and, and, and I guess what we want to try and do is enhance the coping and resilience for young people yeah. and also the, the positive ways of seeking help. And the more experiences young people have of adults who can respond to them in really appropriate and timely ways that give them that positive experience that, hey, when I'm really distressed and not managing that there's an adult there who will go out and ground me and anchor me and help guide me back, now that's really important to, to give young people those experiences. And, you know, having responded to, uh, I probably nursed about somewhere between three and 4,000 young people in my time and, and, you know, through multiple episodes of distress, it never feels any different as the adult, but we need to be able to, to as the adult responder, when a child isn't coping, we need to be able to manage our own distress to help the child and in that moment and, and get and to achieve the outcome that we want, and that is to keep them safe and build those coping and resilient skills. So, so the adult needs to manage their own emotional state in order to be in a position to best respond? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if you think of, you know, if we go back to that um, scenario before, I said Dr. ABC, and if we're in the same room today, Sam, and I fell over and was unconscious and you came in and you were really distressed and didn't know what to do, you can imagine the outcome is going to be a bit different to if you're able to stay calm and say, okay, well, I'll check myself for danger. And, yes. And I guess... If a young person is in acute distress and, um, you know, they're not exhibiting maybe not so helpful high-risk behaviours, if I come in and I'm really distressed and, and, and I start to pour fuel on the fire, whereas if I can remain calm and, you know, I often have a self-talk in my head, respond, don't react, and I'm going through this process and I can't help anyone out there, the young person out there, until I check myself first in, in that moment and just make sure I, I, I like to... The best example I can give is I like to think if I had a mirror in front of me, would I want me to help me in this time of distress? Yes. Yep, that's it's a, it's a really interesting point and a, and a great... But noticing behavioural changes in young people, is that something else that you talk about and the big thing that you, you talk about in the programs? Absolutely. So when it comes to the expression of distress, we'll all do it differently and it's such a subjective experience. But what we know is that most of the time, young people are are able to manage their, their life. And you know, I even think of you know when I work on the inpatient unit, 
for the eight hours that I'm working with them, for seven and a half of those hours, they could probably be anywhere in the world. They could be at school or their friends or but for that half hour where the distress gets too much for them on their own to manage, that's where they need the adults. So I guess what we try and do is when a young person will express distress up to a point where they can manage, you know, that calm and mild levels of distress that they can do, they're going to express their distress by what they say, which is, you know, the literal or the message meaning in what they're verbally communicating to us, by what their body is telling us, you know, the bouncy leg, the, the poor eye contact or, you know, the red rash or sweaty palms or whatever, the goosebumps, whatever the body's telling us, and also by what their actions are doing because all actions and behaviours have a function and communicate something. So we can look at a young person at any moment in time and just and through those three things, well, what someone says, what they do and what they're saying to us and what their body is communicating, we can decide if the child is coping or not. And one of the things we do in the Responder Toolkit program is to identify what that is for each child because it'll look differently. What we're trying to identify is the earliest warning sign that a child has moved from I'm coping to I'm not coping. You know, they're putting their hand up trying to seek attention from an adult to say, hey, look, I'm starting to struggle here, please help me. And that's where we um, would use the TAR3 model to come and connect with the child, which does most of the de-escalation, and then help guide them back to a more helpful behaviour that they've already got in their toolkit or that we're trying to build new strategies once we make that connection. Sounds like a great approach, and it's all evidence-based, so it's based off your studies that you did. That's correct, yeah. The TAR3 model came from the observational component of the study where I observed young people in distress and how the nurses responded to the young people and, and I guess it, it looks through the cycle of escalation and de-escalation and how the interactions between young people and adults and ways of coping and ways of expressing distress. The second part of the research that I did was to interview nurses that um, worked with young people and from those findings of that part of the study there were two really key sub-themes around how to enhance support for young people in distress and that was the more you know a young person the more you can help um, you know, you've only got to think of your own young people in your own life and you know what will help them and the types of things that they might do to let you know if they're not if they're struggling a bit or what what it is that helps manage their distress at different levels so yeah, know the more you know the young person the better and the next one was really about matching the level of assessed distress with the with the response and intervention I guess what I mean by that is if a young person's only a little bit upset, you know, and we come in and offer a, a response or, you know, try to take over and things like that, we're really robbing them of that opportunity to build their own coping and resilience, those mm. self-mastery skills that all young people have to go through. Yeah. Equally, if a young person's really distressed and we come in and we're aloof and disinterested and one of two things will happen, it'll be invalidating and it'll make the young person more upset or it'll give them an experience of help that won't promote help-seeking in the future. And if we want to reduce things like suicide rates, we need to give young people better experiences of seeking help. Steve, I mean, it sounds, like, as a parent, it sounds really complicated, doesn't it, to watch out for all these things and how do you un not under-respond or over-respond? I mean, has this been always been the case? Has it always been around when you think back to generations before us? Yeah, I think so. I think. I was actually listening to some uh, podcasts recently, and I think the generation of young people, you know, especially over the last 
you know, young people are supported more now than probably previous generations, but also young people are exposed to a whole lot more than maybe previous generations were you know, from a, you know, the amount of information that a young person is and stimulus that a young person experiences in a day now is you know, significantly different to previous generations. So I think there are always you know, some similarities but differences. I think probably the, the biggest thing that parents and, and other professionals say to me is how do you know what's normal adolescence and how do you know, you know if it's distress or mental health problem and I, I would probably argue that the more you know a young person the more you can differentiate those things but if you're in doubt go with a young person who's in distress and respond to them in a way to help them to regulate their big emotions in the moment and then once they're in a space to reflect on that talk it through with them and you'll learn something that will help them in the next moment and really help to. And then that's where that connection and communication is really important. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to learn, isn't there? And, and to try and improve and make sure that you're doing the best you can as a parent. Yeah, uh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, and I'm a parent of three now teenage daughters, so I, you know, I wear multiple hats and... I think one of the great things that we, we do know from a attachment theory and yeah, we've only got to do a good enough job. We're all doing the best we can and especially in times of stress, we, we need to understand that the adult and the child are just doing the best they can in any moment and I think that if we're, as the adult responder, if I can just try and stay as calm as I can and try and, my first goal is to try and just make that connection with the child and then often what we try and do in episodes of distress is try and teach young people things. Yeah, that, that's not the time for teaching. Young people aren't taking in lots of information when they're upset. It's really about, look, in this moment, let's help the young person through this episode. And then at a later date, a couple of hours later, the next day, let's reflect on it and do the teaching then. Yeah, that's a good point. What does success look like for Equi Energy? So what, how do you know you're doing a good job and how do you know you're heading down the right path? Yeah, I guess at this point in time from along our journey that we've been able to, to get out to, to, to lots of adults in the community and, and start building that capacity, some of the feedback that we've gotten from you know, parents and professionals that have used the tools that we teach have, have been amazing, you know, and I guess they're the big ones for me personally. For example, we did some training for a school and the assistant principal worked with a, a young person in year one who was you know, having some challenges around aggression and had some partial suspensions and, you know, which impacts on attendance and learning and was becoming really distressed at times. And we were able to do some training, really provide some information to the teacher about what might be happening for the young person. And, you know, we often talk about things like trauma or attachment and a whole range of different things that might be happening for the young person. And then she was able to come back when I saw her a few months later and she said, look, engaged a year one child in how to fill out our our calming plan tool. He would often come up and say, hey, miss, are we going to do our do my plan today? And you know, she'd sit with him and he'd colour on the paper and she'd do it with him. And down the track, they were able to implement and put together a personalised plan for that little boy. And two things that we, that she fed back to us was that the relationship between the young boy and the classroom teacher significantly improved mm. to the point where he um, you know, drew a picture of him and her holding hands in a inside a love heart. And yeah, that mm. relationship strained at times before that. Yeah. And most importantly, the young boy had done really well over a number of weeks and hadn't had any suspensions from school. And it, you know, he had his peers 
social and peer uh, connections had improved as well. That must be really re- rewarding to see that part, you know, be able to play out like that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, I guess even, you know, even just every in my in my clinical work, seeing a young person sit down with a with a nurse or another clinician and and really just get that opportunity to to use the tool to give their voice and their perspective and how to and using that information to share with other adults that you know just might be able to help support them a different way in the future and you know reduce some of the challenges that they have. Steve, have you got some examples of case studies with uh, the equity energy stuff that you can just quickly touch on? Yeah, I guess some of the ones from a health perspective, young people are being admitted to acute inpatient unit and families and young people are in crisis and not sure what to do and really just with the coaching and the methodology and, and bringing together young people and families and giving them some understanding about what's happening from each perspective and joining them up, giving, you know, building the capacity in the parents and adults around them and the young people to maybe get a bit of a voice and uh, across really uh, helpful. I, what we're seeing is that young people are coming into hospital and maybe going home on some leave and it, it always doesn't go 100% but they're able to come back and they're actually driving their own engagement in the process which is really fantastic. They're coming back saying, hey, we had a bit of a tough time at home today but and then you know the, the, the nurses and the team are sitting there and pulling that apart with them and saying, hey, what can we learn about this great job and then getting them back out to try again That's a, you know, at, at a really acute mental health um, level in an inpatient unit. The biggest ones for me are um, you know, the, the young people in the communities where you know, we're teaching, for example, parents and teachers and educators and they're able to sit with a young person through an episode of distress and help them to connect and ride it out without maybe things like being sent to hospital, for example. So yeah. I, I know we work with one school that really thought about, you know, at one point in time, whenever a young person verbalized or engaged in any self-harming behavior whatsoever immediately the, the thing was to call an ambulance and yeah, you know, we were able to work with them and say hey wait a minute if a young person fell over in the school ground and cut himself with a stick and it was a, a little carton that wasn't it wasn't wasn't bleeding a lot would you call an ambulance and 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 so really shifting that thinking around especially yeah. around self-harm behavior what a great notion that whole i mean it frees up other resources for other things as well doesn't it the capacity absolutely yeah and building that capacity to sit with it and to make a really considered decision rather than a reactive knee-jerk one we often say to parents who talk to us about self-harming behavior which is can be really confronting and challenging for parents and adults and young people but i guess we always use the analogy you know if a young person fell off their bike and came to you and it was a scratch as opposed to, you know, they came to you and you've seen it was the, the wound was significant. They're two different medical responses, and that's the same also with self-harm behaviour. Oftentimes, young people, I do assessments in emergency department in, throughout my career, and for young people who present in acute distress, and often the acute distress by the time I see them in the hospital, a couple of hours later, you know, the crisis is over. There's not a, it's really about the... Um, fear in the system around fear and worry in the adults around them and that's really what we want to focus on is to build that capacity so people know what to do and and can and can communicate as adults and think what does this child need now and how can we support them through it yeah what's the plan for the future with equi energy with yourself what's coming up on the radar yeah so we we're really happy about the progress working across multiple systems and one of the things we've always sort of 
work from, hey, let's just have an idea and let's do a pilot and see what the people on the ground really need and what they think about what we can offer to help support them. We're at the moment working with a local primary school and really looking at how we can support young people, families and also the educators in that setting and really build that capacity through training and supervision and support and also from a consultancy perspective around procedures and policies and things that are they helpful for young people and families and educators as well. So we're doing piloting a whole school program at the moment. Mm. One of the interesting things that you know I, I really come to learn in my engagement, especially in the education setting, is that you know the young people that I nurse, the um, students that the teachers teach, they're the same children, just in a different setting. And you know, in my work, clinical supervision is such an important way of protecting me from taking my difficult work at times home to my family. Clinical supervision is so important to maintain so we don't end up with compassion fatigue and burnout. And one of the things that the Energy Youth is really focusing on in the whole school program is really providing that type of support for educators who are you know, not only do they have the task of completing a whole curriculum and teaching many, many uh, children through a massive curriculum, but also the well-being of young people. And um, yeah, we're, we're really focused on that as, as well. That sounds exciting, and uh, it sounds like you've got a lot, lot of stuff happening, which is, which is really good. What, what, what are some trends you, you think that we're going to be seeing moving forward? What are some, some things that you think may become a bit more of a problem with our youth as we, as we go into this decade? Yeah, I probably think, I guess the first two that come to mind, probably just, I know the young people today are really are our, what are they, custodians of our environment. I think young people, I guess they're, I think they're determined to keep the natural environment and, the, and how important that is to young people. And I, I guess one of the challenges is if we aren't able to care for the environment and things like that, I think they'll have a big impact on the mm-hmm. generation of young people at the moment because it's such a part of their core values. Mm-hmm. The other part is uh, you know, technology and the advancements and you know, things like social media and things will continuing and just wondering how that will impact on young brains and, and you know, people's experiences of life as well. So I think there too, that I, I guess one of the things that, that gives me the hope is that I've met many, many young people and despite some really difficult life stories and challenges at the time when they come and spend some time in, in an inpatient unit is they've all got an amazing strength and I think it is those strengths and that each individual young person has that will be some of the solutions as well. May well said, and hopefully we get on top of some of that stuff before it gets too out of hand. But I, uh, I think you're you're spot on there. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? No, I think yeah, we've it's really been yeah a great opportunity to to you know to share this with um with with your listeners. Yeah, it would encourage if people want to uh, find out more or about anything we've said today, or um, yeah, they can always contact us through our website at eeyouth.org.au. That's eeyouth.org.au, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Steve, it's been a wonderful conversation. I've learned plenty about what you've been up to and all the stuff that you're up to at the moment with Equi Energy and the amazing stuff you're doing with the youth. And we look forward to hearing uh, some updates in the future at some point about how it's all going. That would be fantastic, Sam. I really appreciate your time today. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? 
Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au. And be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening, and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.